Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. So after several weeks of phone interviews and adjustments to the usual format, Hey Amarillo is back to our usual sit-down one-on-one interview. I'm excited about it, and I hope you are too. But before we get to today's guest, Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Bivens Point. All of us with older parents or grandparents have been thinking about senior health care more than ever before. Many of us spent the spring staying home to protect the senior adults that we love. Someday, all of us may get to a place where we have to make decisions about rehab or nursing care for those family members. And when that time comes, turn to Bivens Point, a long trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. They've suspended visitation right now. But if you'd like to learn more about this wellness community, visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E. Today's guest is Melody Graves, who joined me for this conversation on my back porch. She's one of those people I have known of for a couple of years, but somehow we didn't connect personally until this interview. She's the Associate Director of Advising at Amarillo College. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Amarillo Branch of the NAACP, a member of the North Heights Advisory Association, and a longtime community activist. If you attended the NAACP community rally on June 6th at Bones Hooks Park, you heard Melody give one of the most rousing speeches of the day. That was a Saturday morning, but it was a straight-up sermon. So we cover a lot of territory in this episode, from her early education. Starting at elementary school, she was bused to South Amarillo from the North Heights. To her experiences pursuing and working in higher education, to her perspective on the current moment we're living in, from the impact of the pandemic in Amarillo to the current national reckoning about racial injustice. This is a fascinating conversation. Here's Melody Graves. Melody Graves, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here today. Well, I'm happy to have you. This is actually the first in-person interview I've done since the middle of March. Oh, wow. So you're my first guest. <laughs> yes. And we're doing it outside on my porch. There was yes. just a car that drove by <laughs> in the alley. People probably will hear that, but that's the reality now. That's we're right. trying to keep this uh, safe and socially distant. And it, it maybe is a little warmer than it normally would be in our studio, but yes, sorry about that. That's okay. There's a nice breeze out here. It's yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it works. Listen for the bird chirps and everything. <laughs> All right, so the first question I like to ask my guests is, why are you here in Amarillo? What brought you to the city in the first place? Amarillo. I was born and raised here. Um, Went to elementary, middle school, high school, graduated from Amarillo College, graduated from WT. Okay. So I was born born and raised here. My entire family is here. What schools did you go to? Um, I went to Lamar for elementary school. I went to Fannin for middle school, and then I graduated from Amarillo High in 98. Tell me why you decided to stay. A lot of kids grow up here just like you did. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe go to AC for a couple of years, and then they go to college and want to get out of here. Um, you did not. So, so tell me why. 
Uh, well, I, I did attempt to. Um, after I got my master's at WT, I went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Okay. And it just was not a good fit for me. Um, what I found out after I got there was that Lincoln was the skinhead capital of the world. Really? And they were having um, protests and things at, at the city council halls and they had put some things on my car, and so... When I, was this, like... This was a direct, like, MLK Day. They put stuff on my car. Like in the early 2000s, or... No, this when, was... When were you there? This would have been 2004. I left... Okay. I graduated AC... I mean, WT in August of 04, and I went to Nebraska to work on my PhD in 04. So this was 04 to 05 that I stayed. Was there a reason, something driving that sort of thing, or was that just, like life in well, Nebraska. <laughs> well, um, at that time, that was just kind of life in Nebraska. My sister lived actually about an hour away in Omaha, and I had visited her, and it was a good environment. But then when you go down to Lincoln, it's a completely different story. Hmm. It's just different. Did it feel different, you know, from a, a, a racial standpoint? Different from Amarillo? Yes. Um, I, in my PhD program, I dealt with that a lot. Hmm. Um, people being singled out or questions like, so Melody, how does the black race feel about that? Because they had not had any African-Americans in their programs in hmm. so long, I had to be the spokesperson for, for all of them. And so it was very awkward. Um, they thought that because I came from Texas, I didn't know about cold weather and things like that. So they would have meetings to develop, uh, get a plan to buy me a coat because I'd be cold and things like that. Just things that you wouldn't normally do to an incoming student. What were you studying? I mean, what, what was your career path in mind at that uh, point? Right. At that time, I wanted to get my PhD in communication with an emphasis in rhetorical studies. Okay. Mm -hmm. What's the goal of that sort of path? I just really want to be an activist, and mm -hmm. I felt like I really want to be a motivational speaker. That's my ultimate goal. And I thought that I needed the PhD in order to, for people to take me seriously. And so I ended up not staying, and I feel like I have been able to learn probably even more. Um, when I did come back, I had to relearn who I was because I had a certain path that I was supposed to go. You know, you go to AC for two years, you get your bachelor's in two years, you get your master in two years, and then in three years, you get your PhD. Along the way, you get married. Then when you get your PhD, you have a child. And, you know, that's just how life was supposed to happen. And when I made the decision to come back home without a PhD, I had to rebuild who I was. I had to refine myself. Because I have felt like a failure, you know, because I had became that person that that made it out. You know, you made it out of Amarillo. You're in Nebraska. You're doing your Ph.D. And I had to come back here and face the people who I felt like believed in me so much. And I felt like a failure. But it was just all part of the growth that I had to go through. Tell me about that process then for for listeners who don't know. Tell me where you ended up, what what you're doing as a career and sort of what that acceptance of your new path kind of looked like? How did you come to terms with that? It, it wasn't an easy process. Um, when I came back here, I worked for AIG for a year. Um, I was making, I had a master's degree and I was making the same thing that people straight out of high school were right, making. Yeah. So that corporate America thing, I was like, no, I don't like this. Then an opportunity opened at um, WT. 
where I could go and be a counselor, which is something that I had always wanted to do for the Student Support Services Program. And they serve um, first-generation, low-income, and disabled students. And so I was able to work with that program for about four years, and then we ended up getting defunded. Hmm. So we found out on August 1st that August 30th was going to be our last day of employment at WT. So then I had to go through that whole thing. I had just had a child. I was out of wedlock. And... I still had to provide, I had to do things. And so I came back here, um, I stayed here on unemployment, and then I took a job at Amarillo College teaching reading, writing, and math. And that was in 2010, November of 2010. Okay. Okay. And so I started off as a teacher, and then that progressed to, I was at the East Campus, which is where they do all the technical programs. So it went from that to being the advisor for the whole campus and running the lab. So I had two full-time jobs at the time. And so that morphed into somebody else running the lab, and then I'm going over to advising for full-time. So during my course of advising at Amarillo College, I think I've advised mostly all programs on campus. So I was very knowledgeable. Um, I sought to understand all the different programs so that I didn't have to turn any students away. When they came into my office with a question, I wanted to be able to effectively answer those questions. So in the advising department, I became very important to the department. Um, I worked in that same department for a while. I, I ventured out for a little while to try administration, but it just wasn't an environment where I felt that I could grow. And so I went back to advising, uh, started doing general studies advising. Mm -hmm. um, great experience. I love students. I love the students. And then in October of last year, I had the opportunity to apply for the Associate Director of Academic Advising at Amarillo College. And it was finally like something that I had thought, okay, I got this, you know. A place where I like your master's degree is, yes, comes in handy. handy or, yeah. Yes, with the communication, with everything, it was like finally, yes. So I accepted that position and that is where I currently am. I'm working at Amarillo College. I'm, I'm the assistant associate director of academic advising. I also serve as the foster care liaison. Okay. Um, also help uh, justice involved individuals who are just being released from prison find a pathway, things like that. I also serve as the diversity chair for the campus and so I just stay busy stay busy in doing what I need to be doing so Amarillo College has been getting a lot of recognition for a variety of steps that it's taking I mean it, it's leading not only in this area but as a, a community college you know among other community colleges nationwide tell me tell me some of the things that you really like about AC and the steps it's taking to meet the needs of you know such a variety of students here I absolutely um, think that it is our leadership. Um, I met Dr. Lowry Hart at WT. I was on his speech team, and I got to know him very well through going through speech teams and things like that. I was also his children's nanny while I was in grad school, okay. you know, and so when I came over to um, AC, it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get the chance to work for this, for my mentor, it's going to be amazing. And, and over the years, I think what he's done is he's been able to change the culture of the campus. We have a culture of caring right now. And what that means is that we're just going to do what we should be doing anyway. We're just going to care about our fellow students to make sure that they get to the end. And you'd be very surprised how people will be different if you just show, if you just show that you care for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, you mentioned it earlier, you, you wanted to get your PhD because it, it sort of put you... Um, in a position as an activist and as a communicator mm -hmm. and gave you like 
whatever legitimacy you know you thought you needed at that point. Tell me, tell me about that path. Uh, you know, as an activist, what has that looked like in Amarillo? In Amarillo, I think that we've had um, a few very strong activists. Um, activism has been a thing, but it hasn't been as important, I don't think, as it is right now to where people are willing to stand up for really what they believe in and and really the rights of others. I think whenever we look around with what's going on here in society, I think it becomes very important that people start to challenge things that have been norms and questions and things like that. And so I don't think you need a PhD to really do mm -hmm. that. You know, I think uh, my life experiences have replaced the PhD. Now, not that I'll never go back and get one later, but just right now, and I'm an activist and I'm doing what I need to do to make my community a better place. When you look back at your childhood and growing up here, you know, you can you can often look back and see, uh, okay, that's that's where that happened. That's where that you know, switch was flipped. It kind of gave me a passion about this type of justice or this type of change. I mean, is, was there a moment like that for you or a series of events that made you think about this is what I want to do with my life? I think for me, because I have always gone to predominantly white in schools, and so my first year um, in the youth chapter with, with the Amarillo Branch NAACP, my ninth grade year, we were able to take a trip and we went to Atlanta, Georgia for the national convention. And it was so amazing to see all of these people that looked like me and they were moving and shaking and doing things. And I knew at that point I wanted to be part of that population. I didn't know quite then how I was going to do it, but I really wanted to. Then I remember speaking um, for different MLK programs that were being had, and people would just love my voice. They were like, you're just so passionate about what you say. And so I was able to combine that passion for, for speaking, because that's something that I do love, with my activism. And I try to appeal to people's heart, and I think that through listening to me, I think that I'm able to do that for them. So this has been a, a period in Amarillo and around the United States and around the world where activism has become front and center mm -hmm. just because of the moment that we're in. Um, from the pandemic to the murder of George Floyd to the protests that began around that, like activism is something that people are thinking about and that are seeing all the time. Before we talk specifically about that, like tell me some of the issues for you personally, that have driven that sense that, that you need to be a person to try to bring about some change, to try to raise a platform for something? I think when you just drive around Amarillo and you see the disparities between the different communities, I think that that has been a really driving factor for me. I want the North Heights community to look like other communities in Amarillo because we are part of Amarillo. And I think that that has been extremely important. And then just the people that you meet. And some people, they really have good intentions, but they just don't know how to voice their concerns or to say their concerns. And so what they end up saying is they don't say anything. Hmm. And so then their silence is perceived as, okay, well, if you're not going to say anything, then you must agree with what's going on. And I think that I'm relatable enough that people just kind of feel comfortable coming to me and asking me these hard questions so that we can then dialogue about those types of things to get through it. Because I think education is really in the midst of everything that we're going through. When you look at the pandemic, when you look at the uh, issues that are going on with African-American men and the police force, I think communication and education are extremely important on both sides. So I'd like to roll back a little bit 
um, because I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you talked about being in Nebraska and it being an uncomfortable place for you compared to Amarillo. When most people, at least from the outside, might say Amarillo, Lincoln, Nebraska, those are same size cities, both in the Midwest, mm -hmm. both rural in, in some degree. Um, could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the ways that Amarillo felt more comfortable to you or safer to you compared to that? I think Amarillo was home for me, and it always will be, but I had become accustomed to the normalcy of the racism that you receive in Amarillo. You know, it's not always so blatant, but in, in Nebraska, it was a little bit more kind of in-your-face type of thing. So then when I come to Amarillo, it's different because I know how people are operating. I know the norms and I know how it's been traditionally. So then I'm more prepared for that because those are things that I'm kind of used to going through. But those, even though it's our norm, it still powers me to keep going forward because I recognize that that's not a normal norm by looking around. You know, it's not, it's not fair that people are being treated differently because of their uh, sexual orientation or because of their race or any of those things, you know, and that, that is the ultimate fuel. I think that fuels that fire. Okay, so the blatant racism in Nebraska was like skinheads putting notes on your car. Right, <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> that maybe doesn't apply here, hopefully doesn't apply here, but if, if you're okay, tell me about that normal racism that you just learned to deal with. For someone like me, who that's not normal for me, mm -hmm. it's not something I've had to accept or get used to or anything like that. Um, so what, what do I not see? I think it's... Um being an uh, being a black student that has to be bused to a predominantly white school, I think that's where you get your normalcy. You um, was that the you, case at Amarillo High? Yes, okay. at every school that okay. I've ever been to, I've, I can I've never had an African American teacher. Okay, and I have probably maybe four grades out of the total time from K through twelve that I've not been the only African American in the classroom. So you were bused in to Lamar yes. as an elementary school mm -hmm. student from, from living the in the Heights North Heights? Area. Uh -huh. okay. From the North Heights area. And we lived right on the dividing line. So like I went to um, Lamar and schools like that, well, people right across the street were going to Paladuro and, and other schools that were in our, in our area. But at the time, my mom was like, we want you to go to this school because we know that you will get the education that you need in order to be able to go on. So this will be your path. And and so that was just kind of how we did that. Um, but it, I think about as early as, what year was that? In high school, I was in a government class, and we were watching Mississippi Burning. And one of the kids in the class raised their hand, and they said, um, That's, that just couldn't be real. That couldn't be real. And with all her gall as an educator, she turned and she said, no, that's just a movie, and most of this stuff is fictitious. And even as a young person, while I didn't say anything in that classroom because I was the only African-American, I knew then that I had to fight against that kind of ignorance, hmm. that one day I was going to have a child and he possibly could have been in a classroom like that. And I needed to have to empower him to be able to say, no, actually, this is based on a true story. Yeah, this I mean, stuff really happened, you know, and I, I regret every day that I was not able to do that. But that's just kind of how it was. You know, I was the only black person on my speech team, you know, and so that was a big thing. You know, I was the only person in 
you know, the, when we have our history classes and we talk about slavery, you know, and everybody kind of kind of turns around and looks at you mm -hmm. to kind of see what you're going to do, you know. I mean, you just get used to that kind of thing. It was just that that's the that's the normalcy that I speak of because it was just something that had to be tolerated as I went through the years. And then by the time I became a senior, I mean, it was just it just it is what it was, you know, like. There were some people that didn't like black people. There was issues between the Hispanic population and the black population. And at the end of it, none of us really stood together. The story I think that a lot of people want to tell is, is a more positive one and think, well, you know, a, a black student, like your mom said, who gets to go to a predominantly white school might have more experiences or more resources, or there might be a positive impact. What I'm learning to understand is that that's not always true. That impact is not always positive. Right. Like you said, you are separated from the kids across the street from you. Mm -hmm. um, wh what are some ways that maybe something that seemed like a good idea, integration, mm -hmm. um, didn't have the exact effect that, that, that maybe people hoped it would? And it didn't. Um, I think that when we did have segregation, the community was more responsible for the kids in the community. And now that we have this integration and we have this mingling of the kids, it kind of it's like they don't need it as much because now they're kind of they're in the same environment as being at Amarillo High, you know, but it's not the same. It's not the community is, has, is not there anymore the way that we need it to be. You know, it used to be like if I were to say a cuss word on the bus, my bus driver is going to go and tell my dad, you know, or if I'm at the, the uh, Y and I say something I'm not supposed to, they're going to get on to me. They're going to call my parents and they're going to get on to me. And then it was like it really took a village to raise me. And we have gotten away from that. You know, the, the parents continuously get younger, having the kids earlier and earlier, and it's hard. You know, don't discipline my child, don't do that. But when, when I was growing up, it was like, if you got in trouble, you knew that you had at least two whoopings coming because whoever saw you was going to get you, and, then when they, and they were going to tell your parents because everybody knew my parents. <laughs> we're in a moment where um, race relations and you know, injustice and all these different things have so, sort of bubbled to the forefront of thoughts for all communities, mm -hmm. black and white, um, and even here in Amarillo. And you ended up being a, uh, a prominent speaker at the NAACP rally. You're um, in leadership at the NAACP. I, I wonder if you could talk to me just about maybe that event, about what that moment has looked like in Amarillo, uh, for someone like you who is in the thick of that sort of activism? Oh, goodness. Um, my life has taken on a completely different path. Not different path. Just made me more dedicated to my purpose since um, since that speech. People are reaching out to me because they want to understand. They want to help. They want to they make it better. And so as an activist, it's almost like, okay, you know, we've arrived. But then you have still a group of people that still haven't quite got to that point yet and they're making it harder for the other people that are that are having issues. Um, I am part of the um, the executive board of the NAACP. I also serve for the North Heights Advisory Association. I'm on their executive board as well and I feel like that's the way that we need to be able to affect change. We need to get into these organizations and make sure that they're doing what our community says that they need to do. 
And so I've made it kind of my personal mission to kind of be the glue that brings all of them together. Because what we see in the 79107 area is a lot of division. You know, it's you have this group and you have this group and you have this group and none of them can come together. And so my goal is to be the glue that brings us all together so that we can all work together to affect the change that we see is needed. What kind of divisions are within the community itself? I mean, what are the things that you're having to bring together? Is it different like focuses, different things that need to happen? Everybody's got their own issues? Yeah, I think it's that er some people just kind of have their own agenda. You know, some people just want to hate other people because other people hate other people, you know, and I think that we've lost focus of what was important, which is the community, which is the kids in the community and ensuring that they have, you know, a better future. Um, we have approximately like 37 churches in the North Heights area, and they have just now started working together and mingling together and, you know, having church together and things like that. When traditionally the church is what held our community together, you know, it was the ministers that were out on the streets walking and, you know, making sure that people were going to school and doing what they needed to do. And since we don't necessarily have that one-on-one -on -one anymore because we're so divided by what church you go to, it makes it extremely hard because when you see someone that's in a leadership position, such as a pastor, you respect that person, you know? And so we have pastors in our community and they're each trying to affect change within themselves or within their congregation. But if we were able to combine together, the impact that we would be able to make would be amazing. Which is, you know, pretty common with churches all over the city. I mean, you know, it's it's clear that, like, like has always been said, Sunday is, is still the, about the most segregated time in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then there's still divisions even within churches in the white community, churches within the black community, within uh, the Hispanic community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still every all these little kingdoms mm -hmm. that, that aren't quite working together. And that's supposed to be one of the big things that's driving change, that's driving healing, that's driving the good things in a community. They're just busy with other things right now. I just, I think that for so long, people were trying to break down those walls, trying to break down those walls, and they didn't break. And so they were just kind of like, okay, well, let's just, you have yours, I'll have mine, and then we'll just do what we need to do. And instead of saying, and this is for any kind of culture, instead of just saying, let's get together and see how big of a church we can build and what we can, what we can offer through this church to make everybody better instead of saying you know so if you go to this church then that must mean that you believe this this and this and then you go a mile down the way to this church so then you must believe this 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 and this and we can't you know? relate to each other at all exactly you know so and, and it's 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 ridiculous almost to the point where if i'm a christian then i should be able to interact with any other christian and they should understand and our hearts should be the same and that's what people should see and I think that, that people don't see that anymore. People are so scared of getting their hearts broken or people taking them for granted that they don't, they don't lead with their heart anymore. And, and it shows. It shows that we have lost the love of the in the communities. How did you feel about the rally and the people who came? <laughs> I almost started crying when I uh, stood up on stage. It was amazing that there were so many people that didn't look like me that came to stand with us that day. I always tell people that, you know, I'm not the greatest activist. I'm, I'm nowhere near Dr. King, but I, I know how he must have felt having the support of people that don't look like him there. 
and speaking against the injustices. And, you know, I got so many, you know, despite COVID, you know, we kind of all just put COVID to the side, but, you know, I got so many hugs and so many thank yous and so many, you know, I've been looking for a way to say it, you know, and it was a very moving thing for me. And since then, I've probably spoken at two other rallies. Um, I have another one that'll be coming up in July on the 11th. And my goal is just that we don't just march, we don't just rally, but we have to figure out what we can do to actually affect some change so that we get past this, this systematic racism that we're continuously fighting. So what I tell everybody, because we have a group of young people who are just on fire right now for civil rights, and that's what I, I'm telling them, you know, it's good to have the march. Let, let's march, let's do that. But the action that comes after the march is equally, if not more so important, because if we don't have um, a fight to change legislation, then we're basically just walking from one park to another, chanting Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. But we need to have meetings with the police chief. We need to get into those circles where things are being made. Go to city council. Get to know Ginger Nelson. You know, find out how, how things work so that we can understand what's going on, so that we can know how to make an effective, educated solution to the things that are going on. Those are broader, you know, steps and solutions and, and advocacy um, meetings and all those things. I, I can imagine listeners who, you know, maybe we're at the rally mm -hmm. um, and are thinking, okay, I showed up here. I know I need to show up somewhere else, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm not equipped to drive for legislation or anything like that. On an individual level, you know, seeing the problem, the racism that probably um, is as prevalent in Amarillo as any other city, um, the injustice that is still ongoing here, like what can an individual do? Um, from your perspective, whether they're white, Hispanic, black, what can they do to move us toward a better place? I think that it's twofold. I think the first thing is that they have to educate themselves. You have to be educated about your own culture, but you have to be willing to be educated about other people's culture. Education is extremely important. You need to be reading books. You need to, you need to be up on current events. You need to you need to read the legislation to understand it, to, to be able to, to make an effective solution. You know, a lot of the times that when Dr. King and the people that were with him, people just saw him march, but they didn't see the hours of strategic planning that went into it and the, the words that he had to say and things like that. They didn't, they didn't see the behind the scenes. They just saw the march and, oh, yeah, we're coming together, you know, and it's great. But there were times, you know, that dogs, were, he was attacked by dogs and water hoses and things like that. And so we have to be open to talk about those things. And I think the other thing is that we need to take a look at ourselves individually, because in my opinion, change starts with us. And so if I'm in a room full of people and somebody tells a racist joke, I have to be the one strong enough to say, hey, we're not I don't want to hear that. Don't do that anymore. You know, that's not right. Somebody tells a sexist joke or a joke about religion or something like that. You have to be strong enough to say, no, I'm not going to stand for that. And what I'm seeing is that people are starting to stand, but they're losing family members. They're losing friends of years, you know, and so it's not it's not a comfortable place to be. I can honestly say that it is definitely not comfortable. But 
it is imperative that we be there right now if we want to see the change that we know that we can that we are capable of. Are you hopeful about this moment? About the last month? Not that there is anything good about it, but is are you seeing a shift that's different from you know past events, Trayvon Martin, or you know the all of the different moments that have you know, caused some conversations, but it hasn't quite had the impact that this one has. And and I think that, that it's time. Like, I don't know, I can't put my finger on what was different about the George Floyd murder. I don't know if it was because of cell phones and it could be televised and we watched for the whole eight minutes and 46 seconds. But now it just feels like more than ever is the time that we have to stand up. It's almost to the point where when Dr. King had his I Have a Dream speech and they marched on Washington, it was like, okay, we've done these other little things, but now it's time to come together and do the impact. And I feel like that's where, that's where we're being catapulted to. So when I see people, especially the younger population, wanting to stand for something and wanting to volunteer and wanting to help, that gives me hope. But as an activist, when I continuously deal with people that hate me and they don't even know me, you know, that that becomes, it becomes tedious and it becomes frustrating. So then I have to go back and I have to make myself regroup and figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, and in that, sometimes it has to be a little bit graphic, you know, because what we tend to do as a society is everybody's mad for two weeks. And then we move on, yeah. you know, and that's kind of what we saw with like Trayvon Martin and all these other people that have died. But this time it's different because for me, I have dedicated myself to make it different this time. And every I watch everything that is going on, like when our brother Ahmad got shot by the, the people who just shot him for running, you know, like. I have to keep I have to be immersed in that stuff because I have to understand what I'm fighting for. If you're comfortable with it, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about psychologically how you deal with not just the, the large-scale racism, but like you said, there are people who hate you. There are people who don't like you because you're an activist. And that's not, not liking you because you're in a certain position or you're representing something. It's like they don't like you. How do you, how do you deal with that just as a person? It's probably been one of the hardest things that I've had to deal with. As, as a person with a very blue personality, I want harmony and I want people hugging and loving. And, and it's been hard, you know, but what I had to do was I had to create a really good support system. Because sometimes, like yesterday, someone posted something and it just really got in my spirit because I had shared things with this person and we had built, built a relationship. And then to kind of know that for me, I felt like everything that we had gone through was just for naught. And so I had to reach out to somebody because I'm like, am I sure this is what I want to be doing? Why am I doing it? But, you know, right then, you know, they replay my speech or they say, you remember when you said this? This is why. This is why we have to keep going. So it's important to have a good support system. Since um, all of this has happened, I am... I don't say no to anybody. Anybody that has a question just wants to sit down and talk, let's do that. You know, anybody that wants to start a book club, Melody, I want you to be in it. Yes, okay, let's do that. Because I feel like God will sustain me if I spread myself thin because I'm doing it for his glory, and that's to bring his people together. I'd like to turn a little bit away from that and think more about Amarillo uh, on a larger scale. You initially had plans to get out of here, 
or to build a life, you know, uh, through education that didn't have you coming back like you did. But you did. And you came back and you found yourself again, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, figured out a new path. Um, looking back at that and where you are now, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about that choice? I think it was the right choice. I think that I was built for times such as this. And my parents still live here, so I'm able to help them. I'm a big family person, so really my whole family is back here. And so it feels really good to be able to affect the change in my hometown. Because if I can affect change here, then that means that I can affect change globally. Because I feel like there's just a lot of work to be done here and a lot of walls to be broken down here. This week's episode is sponsored by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and the one in Amarillo is owned and operated by the Hawkins family who live right here in town. Lazy Boy is open for business right now and offering 48-month, no-interest financing through July 9th. See the store for details. Almost everything they sell is American-made and is a lot more than just recliners. Visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sauncy. Okay, I'm back with Melody Graves. Melody, this is the part of the show called Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Okay. Uh, the very first question is a new one because... You know, we're, we're in a moment where our city has gone through a lot of stuff in the past two or three months. So what's one thing that the last few weeks of protests or the pandemic itself has taught you about Amarillo or about Amarillo people? That we have not come as far as we think that we have come. Okay. And that's including in our race relations and knowing ourselves in claiming that we are very accepting, but not being very accepting, seeing people who have fought for our ability to be able to stand in protest, but yet come up against what we are standing for, hmm. even though they were the ones that were, were fighting for it. Um, I think the pandemic has shown us that it's real. And I think that we've seen what happens when people don't take a pandemic seriously. As we saw our numbers start to skyrocket, I'm still worried about that because people still aren't doing what they need to be doing. But I think that a lot of true trueness has come out of Amarillo during this time. To an encouraging degree for you? A little bit of encouraging, but a, a little bit more of discouraging. Trueness um, in that now it's clear yeah, who it's, is, is on who? your side, who's not. Exactly. And that's really troubling when it's been people who you have talked to and built friendships with and now you see that they they really didn't believe in what you believed in it was kind of just a show you almost feel kind of duped about the hmm. whole thing i feel like there's been a lot of unfollowing of people on facebook a lot of purging of social media on from the the protests to the pandemic to whether or not you wear a mask i mean we're realizing who people are. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, even with the mask thing, you know, people not wanting to wear masks and getting angry about having to do that. And it's, it's, it's not for you. It's because you care about other people and you don't, you want to make sure that they're okay. 
But but people would want to be inconvenienced for five minutes to go in a store with a mask on when it could be saving somebody's life. And and that, those are the things that I that I think about all the time. You know, when we go out and we do something, I'm wearing a mask for my parents. You know, because they're the, they're the age. You know, so I don't want to have to deal with bringing something home to them and them getting it and then them having to fight it when it could have just been prevented if I had just wore a mask. Yeah. You know. What's your favorite local restaurant? Favorite local restaurant, I would have to say, is um, North Heights Discount and Cafe. Okay. Um, it's right around the corner from my house, owned by Reggie Jones. Amazing pork chops, I'm just saying. Yeah, but the service is good. It's in my community, and so there's a variety of people that come in there. But he's definitely supportive of the community. Every time I have something or need something, he's like, call on me, Melody. I, I'll get it, you know? So he has a heart for the community, and the food is amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. I've yeah. never eaten there. Oh, which yes. Is we need to go. To my regret. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, what does this area have too much of? I would say division. Um, We are divided by uh, county. We are divided by sides of town. We are divided by religious affiliation. We're divided by political affiliation. We are divided by um, belief systems. We are very divided. Do you think that division is unique to Amarillo or maybe common in a city in the South or city in the Midwest or city in Texas? I would probably say that it's probably more common than not. Um, it's just because the way society has kind of is built is kind of built um, and we're divided nationally, we're divided. And so I think that the communities, the cities take on that same, that same perspective. We have to be divided. I think back to one of the arguments that people have been having with me so much is that um, you can't say black lives matter. You have to say all lives matter, you know? And my response to them is all lives matter when black lives matter, you know? It's not a, it's nothing that says that one can't happen without the other, but they can both happen. You know, I can say black lives matter and blue lives matter, and I can still say all lives matter because somebody fought for me to be able to say that. Mm-hmm. But I think people are taking it out of context, you know. And so when you say black lives matter, people automatically just turn off. But when you start listing out the statistics and what's going on, people are like, oh, oh. And I think the George Floyd murder, I think that opened the eyes of a lot of people because a lot of people were. Racism doesn't really exist. The police aren't doing anything. They're not. It's not excessive force. They're, you know, they're criminals. They're this. They're that. But as you watch that man and the, the policeman on his neck, and he's screaming, just you, I can't breathe. And he's screaming for his mother, who we find out days later died two years ago. Hmm. It's a problem. I've heard several metaphors trying to explain why saying all lives matter is inappropriate, you know, in comparison to black lives matter. You probably can give a much better one, but the the one that has always struck me is if you have a neighborhood and a house is on fire and the firemen show up at that house, somebody from the house across the street comes over and says, all the houses on this neighborhood matter. Why are you focused on that one? Well, that's the one that's on fire. That's the one that's having problems. Exactly. Um, exactly. And and so you, it's, it's black lives matter too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's not saying exclusively this is the only thing that matters, exactly. but you focus on where the biggest problem is. Exactly. And right now, that is the biggest problem. And that's all that, and, and that's what I posted all the time, you know, it's not the media is what kind of moved us to, it has to be one or the other. But to me, they go hand in hand, you know, and, and it should be human lives matter because of the way that other people are being treated in the United States right now. You know, we need to focus on that. We need to get back to that. What does this area not have enough of? Enough avenues for people to express themselves without being shunned or made to feel stupid or things like that. There's not enough avenues where we can get together and have a thoughtful discussion about a heated issue and still be okay. It's not fostered. It is more of a, if we don't talk about it, then it'll eventually it'll just go away. Hmm. And some things just aren't going to go yeah. away. <laughs> Clearly that doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What's the most underrated aspect of living here? I think the most underrated is that Amarillo is a growing city. It, it's, we're pretty progressive. You know, there, there are some good things. It's, it's a very, it's a place where you could come and raise a family, you know, and, and I'm raising my child here. And I think it's a good springboard for people to be able to go and do other things. But I think it's a great landing pad for people to come for longevity. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Oh, goodness. Honestly, I have never actually went to Cadillac Ranch. Um, my son used to play in Bushland for TTYFL, so we would pass by it. Mm -hmm. And so I passed by it whenever they did the Black Lives Matter okay. um, just to see it. Um, I, I, at first, I didn't think that it was really going to be allowed to happen in, in Amarillo. And then when I saw it, I'm like, yeah, I better drive out there. Were so you I able to see, see it that. in time before, uh -huh. you know... Any, anything at Cadillac Ranch lasts about two hours, you know, before somebody covers over it. Yes. I know that that was the case this time. This time, yes. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was still a little bit of it there when I saw it, but I saw some pictures and photos okay. and things like that. And so, to me, that was a moving statement for our city. Yeah, you know, and, the fact an iconic that, photo for sure. Definitely, definitely. And I wish that I could have just been like out in the front of it with my arms like that, you know, in the picture. That would have been a good, that was my picture op I, I missed out on, but yes. <laughs> What's your favorite season in Amarillo? My favorite season is spring. Okay. Um, I love the rain. I feel like uh, growing up, my mom always said that when it rains, it's God crying and cleaning up everything that needs to be. It needs to be fixed, hmm. you know, and so... And we definitely need some rain. Yes, you know, I'm like, rain down on us, Lord, yes. <laughs> How do you describe Amarillo when you talk to outsiders? I describe Amarillo as a very um, segregated area um, that you can clearly tell um, the different sides of town. Mm -hmm. um, we have some leadership that's very interested in bringing people together. And then we have some leadership that's very just comfortable with kind of how it is. I encourage people always to, to visit Amarillo and to drive to both sides of town so that they can see the differences. And, and it never fails when they come back. They're always like, well, how come this isn't going up over here? And how come this isn't going up over here? And so because that's a question I recently got on the rezoning uh, committee so mm. that we can start working to make, to make the North Heights area something that people can be proud of. Melody, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to end by asking my guest to endorse something. 
And so what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience related to Amarillo? I would say take today to do something good for someone that doesn't look like you here. Because we have such a variety of people in our population, just, just take time to get to know somebody. I think that Amarillo has a lot of places where you can just go and hang out and meet different people, but people aren't talking to those people because they're scared or you know they don't look like me. But I just think that, it, that Amarillo could be a spring ground for us showing the rest of the world what could happen if we were all just to, to put differences aside and build on our similarities. I think that that would be a magnificent, magnificent thing that we could be trailblazers in. Melody Graves, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the episode. It's so good to be back to the usual format. I want to say thanks to Melody for joining me on my porch on a 90 degree afternoon. We were in the shade. There was a little bit of a breeze, but it was still pretty warm. Thanks also to Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Bivens Point for sponsoring this episode. If your business is interested in sponsoring the show or if you as an individual want to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Thanks as usual to Angelina Marie for editing the show, including the part she just took out that I messed up. You didn't hear it. That's because of her. Supporters of the show include executive producers Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossaman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Joshua Rafe, Josh Wood, Chris Selda, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, and Valerie Gooch. This has been episode 150. I remember when uh, we celebrated the 100th episode. It seems like a long time ago. 150. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.